well, we're kind of uh, New Year's Eve. We're kind of on the cusp of a new year, um, aren't we? And and I, I guess you know, most of us to a greater or lesser degree, we wonder what it might hold for us. That's quite a natural thing to do, isn't it? If you're one of those people maybe who will be standing in your living room when the countdown happens or out somewhere or, or, or as, as Jules Holland's studio breaks into Old Lang Syne or, or, or whatever, um, you might allow yourself to ponder a bit on what the future might hold. It's a, it's a legitimate thing for us to think about, isn't it? And, and depending on your age or your stage of life or your circumstances or probably your disposition um, or, or whatever, you, you might view it uh, uh, positively or negatively or ambivalently, uh, I, I suppose. But I wonder whether in the doing of such a thing, we look far enough ahead. This passage here in Romans 8, I I think, encourages our future focus not just to be on the coming year, not not even on the coming decades, what they will hold, but on our eternal future. It encourages us not just to look at the year that's stretching out in front of us, but actually to look at the eternity that is stretching out in front of us because that's what keeps us going, friends. Not a short-sighted look ahead, but a long-sighted look ahead. Because all too often, short-sighted thinking causes us to quit early and regret it later, doesn't it? And so our passage here, it encourages us to take the long view, to, to see that our eternal inheritance to come will be worth every bit of our suffering now. That's what I think we'll see here. And, and notice there's even a birth thing going on here, isn't there? Um, uh, regulars here will know that in the lead up to Christmas, Ollie has taken us through some birth stories that point to the big story, the big story of God's plan to, to send his son and his, his long-promised king to be the saviour, the rescuer that, that we need. And, and how we think about the future glory that awaits us as God's world and as God's people You know, when Christ returns, that's also spoken about here in relation to childbirth, isn't it? Did you spot that in verse uh, 22, how creation in verse 22 and how us in verse 23, we groan as in the pains of childbirth, as we long for the struggles in this world to be over and and our future glory to be realized, like like a mother longs for the pain of, of childbirth to be over and for the joy of new life to be to be realized. So it's not a birth story exactly, is it? But it's a birth analogy, isn't it? That rather graphically, I guess, helps us to anticipate our future glory, as I think uh, we'll see. Just to put the passage in a bit of context for you, chapters 5 to 8 have been about the, uh, the blessings of being Christians, of being justified by faith in Christ. And of course, one of the biggest blessings and the blessing that Paul began that section with back in chapter five is that of our future hope. In other words, the, the confident expectation we have that when Jesus returns and final judgment comes, we can be sure that our salvation will be complete. Right? As justified Christians, we are destined for resurrection and glory. And it's to that kind of uh, confidence-boosting theme, if you like, that Paul returns in in chapter 8. But why? Why does he come back 
to this theme? Why expand on what he's spoken about already in a previous chapter? Well, it's because, and I hope we'll see this here, he wants to remind us that we live in a fallen world where the reality for the Christian is suffering and struggle. That's the context for what he wants to say to us in these verses. In fact, you can see it in the verse above, uh, just at the end of verse 17. Can, can you see that? Um, let me find it. That would be helpful. Um, uh, verse 17 Uh, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In in other words, Paul is saying, um, do you remember what happened to Jesus? Right. Do you remember how he suffered? Remember how he was treated during his life. Uh, Remember how he was eventually put to death. Well, this is the path that he trod, the path of suffering. And Christians are to follow his lead along the same path. But remember, too, where that path led for Jesus, because he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He reigns in glory at the Father's right hand. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. In other words, the path of suffering that Jesus trod had its destination in glory. And in honor. And and Paul has spent some of of, uh, chapter 6 reminding us that we are united together with Christ in his death and resurrection. And so in the same way, we will share in his glory if we are also those who share in his sufferings. Or, Or to put it another way, for the Christian, suffering is the pathway to glory. That's how it was for Jesus. That's how it is for those who are united to him. So verse 17 kind of provides the context. Suffering is a reality for disciples of the Lord Jesus. It was suffering followed by glory for Jesus, and it will be for those who are united to him. And then verse 18, look, beginning of our passage, that provides the the faith building, the, the hope deepening, the trust strengthening truth that whatever our present sufferings are, whatever our present sufferings are, they are worth it. Have a look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for us to us sorry and remember this is paul who's writing this right here's a man who suffered more than most okay beatings uh, imprisonment ridicule hunger shipwreck uh, constant danger paul has known more suffering for christ than, than almost anyone and yet he writes that whatever our present sufferings are they are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's worth it. That's what Paul wants us to take on board in these verses. That's the truth that will stop us from throwing in the towel. Right? And just saying, well, if this is what it's like following Jesus, well, then I've had enough. Okay? Paul says, no, however great the suffering is, 
the future glory that awaits us is greater. However great the pain as we follow Jesus, the riches of our inheritance is greater. However great the persecution as we wait for his return, the splendor of heaven is greater. Do you see? So, so friends, on the, on, the, on the cusp of this new year, I think we need to hear the message of these verses, don't we? So that the suffering that we have experienced or the suffering that we may currently be experiencing or, or may well experience will not overwhelm us, will not lead us to despair, will not cause us to deconstruct or abandon our faith, but will strengthen our dependence on the Lord Jesus. So what is it that Paul says here will help us not to be shaken by the reality of suffering? Two points. I've got a big one and a little one. Okay, here's the big one, verses 19 to 25. What will help us is the anticipation of our future glory. The anticipation of our future glory. And, and what Paul wants us to see here, first and foremost, is how glorious, how incredible, how certain our future glory actually is. In, in other words, the suffering, that is the reality for now, is not going to last. It's just a prelude to the glory that awaits us. A glory that will be ours when the old order of things passes away. Have a look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility or corruption, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So do, do, you, kind of, do you see the picture there? Verse 19, cre creation waits with, kind of, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So the picture here is one of kind of creation itself, sort of, sort of standing on tiptoe in, in, in anticipation as it eagerly awaits, verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God. And it's a picture that, that's intended to take us back to the book of Genesis, actually, and the creation account. So, so we read, for example, Genesis 1:28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. And increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, God's intention for humanity was to manage God's world under God's direction. And, and so in Genesis chapter 3, you'll know when the first people disobeyed God's instruction and fell into sin, this had a much bigger impact than just between them and God. Indeed, the whole of creation suffered as a result of sin, disease and pain and death entered the world. And in fact, that's exactly what we see all around us, friends, isn't it? In the world now, the world is decaying. You know, a, a rose that looks perfect when it's in bloom will in the space of a few weeks decay and, and crumble 
Um, as the people of Bonchurch uh, have discovered recently, cliffs disintegrate and, and they fall into the sea. Even the sun is, is slowly burning itself out. And, and us humans, we know this, don't we? However young and, and healthy uh, we were, we are slowly fading away, aren't we? Our lives over so quickly. The scientists call it entropy, don't they? The, the sort of gradual, inevitable decline of a system. And Paul calls it here, verse 21, bondage to corruption or decay. Or, or in verse 20, subjected to futility. In other words, creation is not what it was intended to be. And you don't need to be a scientist to see that we, humanity, are responsible for much of that suffering that we see around us in the world. Wars, uh, terrorism, famine, and so on are almost always, aren't they, linked, um, uh, uh, responsible for the suffering in the world, linked to greed and selfishness of people. But Paul's point here is that even the rest of the suffering, the floods, the earthquakes, the the cancer, uh, and so on, they all exist as well. Because we live in a world where people have rejected the God who made them. The whole of creation is subjected to futility, is in bondage to decay. Creation is not what it was. But neither is creation what it will be. Paul says, verse 21 again, that this this entropy, this bondage to decay, is a temporary thing from which creation will be liberated. Right, The curse that creation's been under ever since sin entered the world, it will be delivered from. And these verses point forward, verse 19, to the revealing of the sons of God. So that's a time that's coming when all of God's people will have found their way to Christ and the restoration of all things will be at hand. And and Paul is saying that the whole of creation is eagerly longing for that time. That time when all of God's people will be known and and will be glorified with him. That that future glory. When when God's people are revealed at the end of time. It's going to be so stunning. It's going to be so awesome that the whole of creation, frustrated as it is in its bondage to decay, is kind of standing on tiptoe in anticipation of it. You see? Because it means that when God's people are revealed and glorified, creation itself will also be liberated from its bondage to decay. And so, verse 22, it groans to be liberated. As a woman groans in the throes of childbirth, as she longs to be free from the pain, and, and experience the, the, the joyous outcome of, of new life. That's how creation groans too, to be liberated from its bondage to decay. It's quite a graphic image really, isn't it? I guess there are plenty of people here with uh, know a little bit about the pain of childbirth. Even some of the blokes among us who have had to witness our wives going through it, we, even we've got a little idea, haven't we? But of course, uh, many of the women here will know full well how painful it is. But friends, isn't it amazing that an incredible number of mums have not come through the pain of childbirth and decided to adopt next time. But they've put themselves through it again and again. (laughs) And this this is evidently not because the pain is insignificant, (laughs) but because you, you, you go through it because you've discovered that even though the suffering is great, the reward is worth it. 
the new life that comes through the pain makes it all worth it. And friends, this is Paul's point here. In the suffering that is a reality of living in a fallen world, the pain may sometimes feel unbearable. But the reward of our inheritance to come will cause us to look back from eternity and say, it was worth it. In other words, what we have coming when Christ returns and and God's people are revealed and glorified is so incredible that the whole of creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for it because when that moment comes, the whole of creation is liberated too. Do, Do you see, friends, how the fate of humanity and the fate of creation are kind of bound up with each other? In the same way that the sin of people caused the spoiling of creation, so when God's people are glorified, we'll see the restoring of creation. And that is why, verse 23, it's not only creation that groans as it anticipates our future glory, but believers groan as we anticipate it as well. Have a look at verse uh, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Christians, Paul says, are people who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That word first fruits, it means the guarantee of a future harvest. If you like. So, for example, um, I like tomatoes. Okay, just put that out there. I, I, like, I like tomatoes. I especially like the really good Isle of Wight, you know, white salad tomatoes that, that they grow out at Ariton there. But if you go into Tesco's in the middle of winter and, and you, you go and have a look at tomatoes, what you find most of the time is things that look like tomatoes, <laughs> but they don't necessarily taste like tomatoes do they they've been forced haven't they so that we can have tomato looking things on our shelves okay but the problem is it's not the tomato season is it so anything on the shelf that looks like a tomato doesn't really taste like one so i really look forward to the time when the new season tomatoes the the british ones uh, especially from down the road there the island ones come into season and as the, as the summer approaches, you get the first ones, don't you? The first ones arrive in the shop. They might not be the best ones yet, still a bit early, but you know there's good stuff to come because the first fruits are just starting to arrive. And that's great, isn't it? Because that's the guarantee. That's the sign of a whole harvest of the things to come. And before you know it, you're overrun with them. And Paul's point here is that as Christians, as people who have been made right with God through faith in Christ, no matter how spiritual we are, in this life we have only the first fruits of the Spirit. However much of the Spirit we have in this life, it's just a foretaste, it's a down payment of what's to come. 
And that's because while we're still here on earth, we experience spiritual and moral weakness. Don't we? we? We still battle with sin. We still live in a world that's corrupted by sin. And so we yearn, we long, we groan in anticipation, verse 23, uh, of that time when our adoption as sons is complete and our bodies are finally redeemed and we're free from sin and frailty forever. Friends, that time is coming. Right? The completion of our salvation is a confident expectation. And the Holy Spirit who dwells in us now as Christians is the first fruits of that fabulous harvest to come. But, verse 24, it has not happened yet. Right? The redemption of our bodies is a hope. In other words, it's a thing that's certain but it hasn't happened yet. It's still to come. And so, verse 25, we wait patiently for it. And friends, again we see, don't we, that for the Christian, as for Christ, it's suffering now, it's glory to come. Right, The redemption of our bodies, verse 23, the replacing of our sin-corrupted mortal bodies with the immortal bodies that are free from corruption, that is a blessing to come. It's not a promise for now. I think that ought to be corrective for us. You know, uh, uh, some of us can, can see physical healing now as an essential accompaniment to what we should expect either to the gospel being proclaimed such that soul souls saved should be accompanied by bodies healed paul says here no how no matter how spiritual we are as christians we should not expect that to lead us to health and healing in the here and now no for now we have the first fruits of the spirit but the full harvest is yet to come of course, what Jesus has achieved for us on the cross includes healing and wholeness as well as forgiveness of sin. But as we see, that's a blessing for our inheritance to come when our bodies are finally redeemed. It's not a promise for the here and now. Now, of course, that doesn't mean God doesn't bring healing in the here and now in his, in his sovereignty. He may well do. But if he does, we will still expect to get sick again. And in the end... We will die. Now, the fabulous thing about having the Spirit now is not because of the healing that might happen now. It's because having the Spirit now is having just the first fruits of what's to come. To have the Spirit now is to have the cast iron guarantee of full and final and eternal healing to come when our bodies are finally redeemed. So we need to be careful, friends, don't we, about a, about a kind of Christianity that tells us we can have it all now. Yes, we've been born again. Our, our minds, our hearts have been transformed through the gospel. We are new people. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer condemned by the law. We're given new life in the spirit. All of those things Paul tells us in, in chapters 5 to 7 of his letter. But while the inner person has been made new... The body is still subject to sin and decay and eventually to death. 
because we live in a sinful world and we are still ravaged by it. And that means that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who have tasted something of what is to come, well, we groan, right? (laughs) Don't we? The older we get, probably. We groan along with the whole of creation as we anticipate the fullness of our inheritance to come. We groan, but we wait. We wait with patience, verse 25, because these are blessings to come. But friends, we don't wait with despair. We don't throw in the towel and give up and think that there'll never be an end to our suffering. And we don't wait with surprise either that God should allow us to suffer. We don't wait with anger or bitterness or disappointment, expecting God to give us now what he promises for the future. No, instead, verse 23, we wait with eagerness and with the hope of heaven to keep us going. Did you see, friends? What's going to help us as, as we look ahead in this new year? What's going to help us not to be shaken by the reality of struggle? suffering well firstly it's the anticipation of our future glory Um, I'm not often found quoting 16th century nuns Um, uh, but this quote from uh, Teresa of Avila I thought was quite striking she wrote in the light of heaven the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And that's not intended to trivialize our suffering. It's intended to convey to us that so magnificent will our future glory be that everything will appear inconsequential in comparison. So friends, let's not be short-sighted And decide that the present hardships of following Christ are not worth the inheritance to come. Don't quit early and regret it later. But take the long view. See that what is to come is worth every bit of whatever pain and sacrifice we may face. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so beautiful. That creation itself is on tiptoe in anticipation of it. But the anticipation of our future glory is not the only thing to help us here, is it? Let's have a quick look um, at the the second and shorter point. What else is going to help us face the reality of suffering in the here and now? Verses 26 to 30, it's God's provision while we wait. See, we can can not only wait with eagerness for our future glory, but we can trust God to sustain us while we wait. And you can see the first way God does this. Look in verses 26 and uh, 27. Have a look. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
So, so as God's people, eagerly awaiting our future glory, but still in our weak state, still sinful, still in our mortal bodies, we have the help of God's spirit. That There are often times, aren't there? Maybe it's just me, but I don't think so. When, when we struggle so much with our own weakness, you know, with the struggles of living for Christ in, in a fallen world, that, that we either don't pray or we're just so much at the end of our resources, we don't even know what the right thing to pray for is. That there is this, this longing inside us to be conformed to the image of, of Christ, to, to do the right thing, the godly thing, but we don't even know what that is, what to pray for. Do, do you recognize that? These verses tell us that God doesn't leave us alone in that state, but that we have God's spirit inside us as Christians. And he does know the will of God. And he knows us as well, which means he understands our frustrations and our pains and our longings for, for perfection to come. And he knows that in our weakness, we don't know how to pray sometimes. So he prays for us when we're too weak to pray for ourselves. And his prayers for us are in perfect accord with the will of God. And so we can be assured that God will answer them. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing provision? Don't you think? Isn't that an amazing provision that God has made for us as we await our future glory? But it doesn't end there. Look, look, look at verse 28. Um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Wow. Do you see that? God, God, doesn't, uh, God doesn't remove the trials and the difficulties of living in a fallen world, but he does use them for our good. Um, please notice, first of all, that God works for the good of those who love him. So you know that popular saying, oh, it'll all work out okay in the end. Well, that's just not true unless you're a Christian. And that's because the way things work out is not down to fate. It's not down to luck. It's down to the perfect plan and purpose of God who works all things for the ultimate benefit of his people, those who place their trust in him. So that's a massive comfort and strength for Christians, isn't it? But it's also a warning for those who are not. So, so what will help us as Christians not to be shaken by the reality of our present suffering, it's the assurance that God is working all things ultimately for our benefit. See, friends, God is working to a plan, right? He's following a process which is transforming followers of the Lord Jesus into replicas of Jesus himself. He wants us, members of his family, to be images of the head of the family, Jesus. Verse 29 puts it like this. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. And friends, this is part of why we still have suffering in the here and now, isn't it? It's because what God is working for in the here and now is not to make us healthy and happy and comfortable now. He's working to make us like Jesus on the last day. So that we can share in his glory. That's what he's doing. And, and here's how he's doing it. 
Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And do you see the key words in those verses? Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They're, they're words in a chain, aren't they? They're, they're the words that spell out for us the process that God is following. And we can see that this process is not about what we do, is it? It's about what God is doing, which means that if God is doing it, nothing's going to stop it from happening. So, so what will help us not to be shaken by the reality of our present suffering? It's to know that our future glory is secure. And we can know that it's secure because we're foreknown by God. Christians are, are people that God has set his love upon. He, he knew us and then he set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. And so those he foreknew, he predestined. Again, before any of us were born, God had decided what he was going to do. He chose us. He elected us for himself. And those he predestined, he also called. In other words, by his spirit, he performed such a work in our hearts that when we heard the gospel message and the call of Christ to, to take up our cross and follow him, we couldn't refuse him. This is God's compelling call to, to come to him. And those he called, he also justified. This is what we're going to see in a few weeks' time, actually, uh, here when we're having a look at Romans 1 to 4. God puts people right with himself. He declares them to be righteous. He justifies them. How does he do that? He does it through the cross, right through Jesus dying in our place, taking our sin on himself, putting his righteousness within us so that we can stand before almighty God and be declared not guilty. And those he justified, he also glorified. So here's the source of our hope. Friends, here's why we won't give up in the face of suffering. It's because if you're a Christian, you are heading for glory. You know, um, uh, many of us as Christians can struggle sometimes with the idea of being chosen, of being predestined. We get into great debates about free will and so on. Paul tackles some of that in chapter 9, actually. But friends, I think it's really key for us to understand that ultimately... We are not Christians because of our decision, but because of God's. Yes, I made a decision to follow him, but that's only because, first of all, before I was even born, before the foundation of the world, God knew me and loved me and chose me. And then as I heard the gospel, he called me and he forgave me and he put me right with him through the cross. God did it. And you know, if it was just down to me, just down to my decision, who knows whether I would finish the race or not. But God did it. And so we can know that the God who did all that will complete the process that he started and will bring you and me to final salvation, final glory. So yes, it is suffering now. But friends, it is glory to come. 
And God wants us to be certain of it so that we will wait for it patiently and with eager anticipation and and with the unshakable confidence that he will wonderfully provide for us as we wait. Do you see that the spirit's intercession that helps us in our struggles and the confidence of knowing that what God has started in us, he will bring to completion. Our future glory is assured. So, friends, as, as we stand on the, on the cusp of another year, you know, as we look ahead to what the future may hold, friends, let's make sure we look far enough ahead. Let's not be naive, but expect a struggle for now. But let's know for sure that future glory is coming. Whether you are young and fit or whether you are old and decrepit, <laughs> your best days are ahead. Right. Because God is in the process of taking us through the many trials and tribulations of life in this fallen world towards the final day when our bodies will be purged of all sin and sickness and suffering and death, and we will be glorified and become like Christ. A time when God's people are reconciled, a time when the cosmos itself will be made new. You on tiptoes yet? Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Father, loving, sovereign Father, um, please would you encourage us with these words from Paul. Um, Please help them to sink into our hearts and our minds, that they would fuel our living for you, our confidence in you, our whole life worship of you, as we wait for the completion of our salvation. All of this we pray for your glory. And in Jesus' name.